Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As we leave you now, try to imagine what it must be like right now in Nebraska, where there are no major professional sports teams and no other major university within its borders. And in Lincoln now, and all across the Nebraska Plains, this first national title in a generation is a wonderful way to start this new year and a wonderful and crowning moment in the career of Tom Osborne, Nebraska national champs. thing that really was great, and I, and I really mean this, was the people in the state of Nebraska, because how much behind the team and how badly they wanted to win in the sport of football. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show, with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky, Boomer, and Mac on a special Redcast where uh, we're introducing a interview with Mike Babcock. Honky, how did that go? <laughs> Dude, it was awesome. I mean, we just got done with it, Mac and I. Yep. I call it Husker History 101 mm-hmm. because, Boomer, we touched on Jumbo Steam. I think you're going to be very happy about that. Oh, of course. Yeah, it was a lovely walk through history with, you know, drawing some comparisons to what we're dealing with now as Husker fans, just realizing it's it's all cyclical, man. Life's like a merry-go-round. It goes up, it goes down, you know, a lot of energy. <laughs> it sounds like that's from the 60s right there, Mac. Boomer, uh, you're looking forward to this, I imagine. Yeah, it should be a given. I've always enjoyed Babcock's writings and... Just the excitement in Hunky's voice. He sounds like a, a kid at Christmas, so I know it's it, it should be entertaining. So let's give it a listen. And Boomer, you'll be happy to know, too, that we threw out uh, your petition to the athletic department to get a statue for Jumbo Steam. And I think we have uh, Babcock's approval of that. Maybe he might help be an advocate for us with that. Perhaps a hologram, maybe, as, as technology improves. Yeah, we could do that, I think. Yeah, real, real cutting edge would be the, the thing to show the, really taking the athletic department to the future while, while embracing the past. The I new like field it. turf is fiber optic cable, so... <laughs> It's going to be amazing. We can do whatever we want with it. <laughs> All right, guys. This uh, I am really looking forward to the interview. I'm glad you guys had a chance to talk to Mike Babcock, and hopefully we'll be able to get him back on again. But uh, let's take a listen. When a player tears loose, the biggest thrill belongs to the college kid in the stands. But many an old grad can look back to his day as an excited freshman, back perhaps to the roaring 20s and that golden age of sports. Mac, this is a, a big pleasure for me. This is mm-hmm. a guy that I've been wanting to talk to for since we started this yes, show. Yes, I know. And we have a chance here to talk with Mike Babcock. Mike is in his 40th year covering Husker athletics. He's written and edited a dozen books on Nebraska football and a brief history on Husker basketball. Uh, in fact, one of the earliest books I have, and I have it right in my hand right now, is Devaney and Friends that he wrote back in 81 with some friends. Mike previously wrote for the Lincoln Journal and Star, Husker Illustrated, and he's currently editor at Hale Varsity. Uh, welcome to the Redcast, Mike. <laughs> hey, thanks. I, I appreciate the, the kind work. I'm mostly an expert on really old history where there's nobody around to dispute whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> Don't you hate Google now? <laughs> that's that's the thing about Google. That ruins all the art of argument, you know? <laughs> hey, listen, now I've seen some 
things on the, I've, I've Googled some things I got on Wikipedia that are not even right. So <laughs> you use that as a starting place and then you go from there. Right, mm-hmm. right, exactly. I mentioned you're with Hale Varsity. Mac and I, Dave and Boomer, we had a chance to go down to the Hale Varsity offices and we chatted with Derek Peterson on yeah. the Varsity Club podcast. That was a lot of fun. It was and fun. So yeah, uh, give Derek our, our warmest regards. I'll do that. Yeah, Derek's getting married here pretty soon. Well, yeah. Um, that's pretty I hadn't seen him except for his biopic, and when he went to open the door for us, I'm like, well, who's – what? he's got such long hair, you know? And then he told me that he had to cut it all for his wedding, so. Yeah, I think he's getting ready for the honeymoon, I think, actually going to Hawaii, as I understand it. Yeah, I think that's what he told us, yep. Well, Boomer and I are kind of the two historians on the Redcast, and if we were teaching a class, I think Boomer would teach Husker History 101, mm-hmm. which would be kind of the 1891 to 1941 range, I'm going to call it. <laughs> and what gets lost in – Husker history, and a lot of fans don't realize, we know that it, we've been a blue blood since Devaney. We know that. But what gets lost is is how good we were those first 50 years. And there were a lot of wins, and there were a lot of great coaches, and the, the only winning record against the four horsemen of Notre Dame came from Nebraska. And so when someone asks you, you know, what did Nebraska football start like? How did the first 50 years go, and, and how did this tradition get going? You know, what are the first things that start to come to your mind? One, George Flippin, okay. you know, African-American. Mm-hmm. According to Arthur Ashe's uh, uh, research, uh, he was only the fifth African-American football player at a major, at predominantly white university ever, in the country. From Stroudsburg, uh, too, that, right? I think that's remarkable in itself. That's wow. the first thing I think of. second thing I think of is the run that, fairly brief, that uh, the Jumbo Steam had. You know, I think his record, 35-2-3, and three, and uh, they were the steamrollers. And mm-hmm. he was a, you know, Jumbo, he was six foot four, and uh, he didn't appreciate being called Jumbo, uh, <laughs> from what I've read in student yearbooks. There were some entries, that, there was one entry there that said that uh, he really ripped into the student newspaper uh, reporter for referring to him as Jumbo, <laughs> and for re- referring to his team as playing with a lot of steam, S-T-E-A-M, play on his last name. And playing for Jumbo, apparently, you played through injury because if you ever left the field, that was it. Somebody else came in and you never came back. So he was a demanding guy. Uh, the interesting thing was when I was at the newspaper, I had an opportunity to talk to a gentleman who played for Jumbo Steam. Oh. He was like 100 years old. <laughs> he lived in Ohio. And the one thing that I remember about the phone interview was, he said, I'm 100 years old, I just renewed my driver's license. <laughs> what kind of place gives a driver's license to a guy who's 100 years old? Yeah, I, there's got to be a cutoff somewhere before 100. <laughs> you know? well, I, I've got to tell you, Mike, Boomer, right now, when he hears this, he is going to have the biggest smile on his face because he is honestly petitioned the athletic department. He sent him emails, I've seen him. Asking for a Jumbo Steam statue. He thinks there's a curse on the basketball program ever since Jumbo Steam left because he was the coach of basketball too and a, a very successful yeah, coach. And he left to go to Indiana. So he, Boomer still believes that there's a curse <laughs> on our basketball program since Jumbo Steam left. Hey, what do we got to lose? We might as well, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Here's the thing. People weren't too happy when he left, obviously, because he'd been so successful. And when he was the coach, he left after the 1915 season. Um, there was talk of building the concrete and steel stadium before he left, so that had he not left, probably Memorial Stadium, there would have been a stadium built before 1923, 
thing mm-hmm. wow. because there was so much interest in football under Jumbo Steam. Mm-hmm. And he left because Indiana offered him $4,500. I think he was making thirty-seven fifty at Nebraska. Oh, wow. Yep. And so the uh, Nebraska boosters said, we can raise enough money to pay you forty-two fifty. <laughs> he said, I'll stay for that. And the faculty said, no way is a coach going to get paid more than professors and administrators at the University of Nebraska. Oh. So they said, we're not having boosters getting involved like that. So Steam said, I'm going to Indiana. And the tragic part of it is, I believe uh, he was diagnosed with cancer about four or five seasons in mm-hmm. uh, after he left Nebraska and he died. But, you know, I think of him when I think of success that Nebraska had. And, you know, he wasn't the only one. Bummy Booth before him had really good teams. DX Bible had really good teams after him in the 20s. Nebraska had this tradition, and there was this passion among Husker fans and and even the university. They won it in the Western Conference, which was the predecessor to the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, they won it in that thing, but they could never pull it off. I, I always uh, tell people this, and I can't remember all the schools now. I'd have to go look, but you know, on the old facade of uh, Memorial Stadium on the uh, east side there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see uh, what Drake. They got the yeah, of all the like Grinnell is there. one of them or something. And, yeah, Grinnell is up there, and I think St. Louis because those were the schools from the original uh, Missouri Valley. Right. That's a question Boomer has had on the west side of Memorial Stadium. Another petition he has sent is that <laughs> we don't have some of the championships from those pre-Big Six era listed on the west side of the stadium. And he's like, what gives? You know, like, are we not embracing that? I don't know why we don't do that either. Are we not embracing that historical part of the, the program? They don't have those listed up there? No, nah, I guess it only goes back to... To the Big Six? Yeah, I think, it, I think it just goes back to the beginning of the Big Six. At least that's the question he sent me here, and I know he's been complaining about it for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't realize that, I guess. I mean, I, I thought that they acknowledged some of those early conference titles in the Missouri Valley because they won uh, a couple mm-hmm. steam all of his seasons, I think first season they tied for it, and then the rest of them they won the Man. won the conference. Hmm. Somewhere in there, 19, 19, 19, 20, Nebraska was an independent. Okay. The story is that teen 19, Nebraska scheduled Oklahoma in Omaha mm-hmm. as part of a, uh, a doubleheader with Crate. Crate played somebody there, and the conference had a rule that you couldn't play uh, home games off campus. You had to play them on campus. So because Nebraska played Oklahoma in Omaha, Nebraska was dumped from the Missouri Valley and played as an independent that season because they dumped them in advance. They said, well, if you've got that game scheduled, that's against the rules. So they dumped them. Nebraska was an independent in 1920 as well. And then in 1921, Nebraska petitioned to be back in the conference and was admitted back. But in the 1920, when Nebraska was dropped from the conference, the conference added a team. Who did they add? Added Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So the team that Nebraska had played in Omaha <laughs> and got knocked out of the conference was the team that joined the conference. So that when Nebraska got back in, Oklahoma was in. And they were in the same conference right up until Nebraska went to the Big Ten. Wow. Hmm. That's a long stretch. Yep. When I started at the newspaper... You know, not counting bowl trips and all that sort of thing, but the stadium that that always just got me excited to be there 
Norman because mm-hmm. I grew up with Nebraska, Oklahoma football, and, and I just probably to this day I would still feel the same way because there was that cachet from Nebraska, Oklahoma, that rivalry, um, which Oklahoma didn't see it quite the same way Nebraska did because there was Texas involved in that. But, mm-hmm. but Nebraska and Oklahoma were playing in the same conference since 1920, so we're back into that first 50 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And we had the same you know, interest in trying to get into that Western Conference and, and never did until uh, long after <laughs> uh, there was interest. The trophy itself is a rugged-looking bronze statuette depicting an old-time running back sidestepping and straight-arming a would-be tackler. It was created in 1935 by a well-known New York sculptor, Frank Eliskew. So as we transition from the 20s to the 30s, 30s start to change things where the AP poll comes out or the Heisman comes out. And I know Sam Francis was one of the top guys in one of the first years of the of the Heisman. We, we were ranked right away when the polls were coming out. And that leads all the way up until 41 in, in our first bowl game in the Rose Bowl. So that success continued from the 20s and it goes into the into the 30s. And we just continue on this winning tradition. Yeah, and I, and I think I'd put a footnote in here. You know, Cy Sherman, the father of the Cornhuskers, mm-hmm. was given Nebraska's nickname. Journal uh, star guy, right? Uh, yeah, he was a star, Lincoln Star. Okay. And he was one of the driving forces behind the establishment of the Associated Press poll. Hmm. Cy Sherman and uh, a couple other sports editors were the driving force behind that, which was started in 1936. So yeah, so and Nebraska is involved in the national discussion there to some extent during that time. And Biff Jones comes in 1937. Nebraska gets to the 41 Rose Bowl, and then Biff Jones has one more year before he's called back to duty. When he's done with that, he comes back, and there's not an interest in having him as coach. And so he, I never did quite understand that part of it, you know, mm-hmm. because he could have come back, and it didn't seem like the uh, boosters wanted him back. So what? Yeah. He never went on to coach at another school either. I don't believe he did. Oh. I, I know that he left here because he was called back to duty, which meant going back to West Point and I think overseeing the athletic program there. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Think, okay. Yeah, and and I think that when his stint was up, I think he wanted to come back here, and the booster said, "No, we're we're going to move ahead." Interesting. That was quite an accomplishment to get to the Rose Bowl, but. Mm-hmm. You know, the story was, here's Jumbo Steam. The story was that Nebraska had an opportunity to play in the Rose Bowl under Steam in 1915. And supposedly, now this is according to a column in the newspaper, and I think it might have been Cy Sherman, he wrote this column, like Nebraska would have had an opportunity, 1915, I think, to play in the Rose Bowl, but the administration said, no, uh, <laughs> we can't extend the season like that. So oh, wow. they didn't did do that. Times I mean, have changed. A, you know, <laughs> yeah, there was a time where there was some about playing in bowl games and extending your season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it wasn't the Rose Bowl, maybe it was another one of their bowl games. But I remember that column saying that, uh, yeah, not a lot of people had been widely reported, but Nebraska had this opportunity to go to the bowl game and administration stepped in and said no. So the fact that they did go to the 41 Rose Bowl was a was a really big deal, uh, obviously. And mm-hmm. Bob Devaney always, that was his standing joke. He said he'd been at Nebraska for a couple of years before he realized that they had lost that game because people were so passionate about uh, what happened with the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were welcomed the team back. And I mean, it was just a great experience. This is such a good history lesson right now, mm-hmm. I think, because 
we talk about the sea of red in Lincoln or when we went to the Boulder game this year and there was so much red out there. Even that Rose Bowl game, I mean, there were train loads of, of Husker fans that, that I've read that went out west and, you know, wow. made the trek out to L.A. to watch it. That was happening all the way back then, 41. So the fans yeah, have always done yeah, their part. Yeah, and the, uh, it was a big opportunity for the team. What they leave a week or so before the game and practiced in Arizona and went on to Pasadena and played the game and got a tour of a motion picture studio. Jeez. I think uh, was it Robert Taylor, the actor, was, was actually from Beatrice, Nebraska, and so he made arrangements to show the team around the movie studio. And it was just a really big part of what Nebraska accomplished in, in the time frame that we're talking about far and away overshadowed disaster that was the 55 Orange Bowl. Let's actually start to transition to that time period. I think it was Keith Jackson was talking about Husker history, and he he mentions the 1941 Rose Bowl. Pete Kavenovich, I think, was the name of the player for Stanford, returns a punt. (laughs) And he goes, after that, for the next 20 years, Nebraska kind of went downhill. And and basically, the war <laughs> affected Nebraska in multiple ways, but on the football field, it affected us because I think other schools that had like ROTCs, some of the best players, if, if you had a strong 20-year-old boy, he wasn't playing football, he was going to be going to war. And so it, like there was a school like Iowa Flight School or something was mm-hmm. yeah, played for a couple yeah. years, and they were good. Yeah, Nebraska played the Iowa Pre-Flight, I think it was called. Oh, that's right. No, I think Nebraska played that team once or twice, and... A.J. Lewandowski coached a couple of seasons in there like this was how it got to be. I mean, I think he was the athletic director, the football coach, basketball coach. He was like everything. The did he become manager. the – was he the ticket office guy when he got done coaching? I, he did. He served several roles. Oh, wow. Yeah, when he got done coaching. I think he just coached because they didn't have anything else. I mean, I think he was the <laughs> athletic director who said, oh, so this is like, okay, well, I'll coach, you know, football, basketball, and try to uh, – bridge the gap until they brought in Potsy Clark, I think, replaced him as coach. And then Potsy Clark served as athletic director, and then he hired Bernie Masterson, a former Husker, to be the coach, and mm-hmm. people were unhappy with him after about two seasons, and <laughs> maybe even one season. So Potsy Clark coached again before they hired Bill Glassford. And you're right, it was it was difficult for Nebraska because if they were playing young guys, they were freshmen in college, they were putting them on the field because that's what they had. Mm-hmm. They just weren't very successful then, not successful as, as a lot of these other schools were, uh, or had the opportunity to be. I don't know that anybody was all that successful because you lose all that manpower to the war, but mm-hmm. it certainly affected Nebraska in terms of what happened on the field. Yeah. That's for sure the number of coaches that Nebraska went through. I think it was like seven coaches between... 1942 uh, and 61. Yeah, yeah seven coaches between him and Devaney. Mm-hmm. And, and how many years? Uh, in, in, in basically 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Glenn Presnell was a former player. They tried him for one season. And like I said, Masterson, I think, for two. It didn't work out. And people were unhappy. And, and Mike, know, I, this is really good background for people to understand from what maybe just happened a couple of years ago with bringing Frost in and where we're at. We just got done with 15 years of, by our standards now, quite a few coaching changes, going from Callahan to Pelini to Riley and... But that, those 15 years from 2004 to 2017, they were nothing in comparison to what these 20 that we're talking about, the 40s and the 50s, in terms of a lot of really bad losing seasons and also just a lot of coaching changes. And I think kind of one of the lessons to come out of that is that, to me, when you have the right people, and, and maybe we didn't during those 20 years, but once we got Devaney in there, it was 
okay, we're sticking with this. This is the right. This is the right route. Yeah, and they did have some success. I mean, that you know, Bill Glassford had got three winning seasons and a 500 season, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of drama uh, mm-hmm. involved in his tenure because he was a tough-minded guy. You were telling us this before we recorded, but where did they practice at before the uh, the season there? They went out to Camp Curtis to to the Ag College at Curtis, and we, as we talked, it was like Bear Bryant and the Texas A and M the Junction Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, it was brutal. I mean, there, there were literally players that left camp out at Cook or the closest big place where they could take the bus, you know, home. Uh, <laughs> that ended their football career because they weren't going to put up with the, the demands that, that he put on them. Bill Glassford <laughs> played for uh, I think Jock Sutherland at Pittsburgh. Chuck Sutherland was a legendary coach and a tough-minded guy, and that, you know that's what they wanted when they brought Glassford in. Was a tough-minded guy, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not to the degree that it was, because by the <laughs> you know in 1954 there was a the boosters were circulated a petition among players to get rid of Glassford, and a bunch of players signed it. And I, I've talked to players from that team. Uh, at least one said that he really felt misled by the boosters. He signed it. The boosters came to Lincoln and had a big blowout party at one of the hotels here in town and at the Cornhusker, I think, and, and brought that petition along and, you know, got guys partying and stuff and then tried to get them to sign that thing. And, and one of the guys that was there, he said, you know, I wish I hadn't signed it in retrospect, even though he felt like Glassford was a demanding guy and unreasonable to some extent. He wishes he hadn't done that. But they've got the petition and then Glassford meets with the team and actually changes some of the things in his approach. Mm-hmm. And the indication was that 1955, which was his last season, he got along pretty well with the players because, you know, they'd had a face-to-face meeting and they aired their grievances or whatever. And he had another year on his contract, I believe. I'm almost certain at least it was at least one year. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, I've had enough of this stuff. I'm out of here. <laughs> and I, he, he went and sold insurance. So he takes off and then Nebraska hires uh, Pete Elliott, who was at the time, I think he was about 29 years old when they hired him. Wow. And he had been an assistant coach at Oklahoma. And he brings Bill Jennings back into coaching. And so Jennings is his assistant coach. And then Pete Elliott bails after one year, <laughs> goes to California. And so Jennings moves up to head coach. So Jennings had the Oklahoma background too. You probably know this story, but Jennings was effectively the recruiting coordinator for Oklahoma and Bud Wilkinson Mm -hmm. as an assistant. Jennings was from Norman, Oklahoma. He played at Oklahoma and uh, had those Oklahoma connections. And he's a recruiting coordinator. And Oklahoma has, the NCAA investigates Oklahoma on recruiting violations or whatever. And basically, Bill Jennings is the guy that takes the fall for the whole thing. And they get him a job with an oil company in Dallas or somewhere, and off he goes. He's out out of coaching. Mm -hmm. And then Pete Elliott brings him back as an assistant. And then Elliott goes, and then Nebraska hires Bill Jennings as a coach. So when Jennings steps in as head coach, I think there's a pretty good feeling at that point. It's like, oh, this guy's got connections to Oklahoma. And to give people a little bit of background with Oklahoma during the 50s, I mean, they were going through a record winning streak basically at that time, correct? 47 straight, yeah. Still an NCAA record. I remember watching on TV uh, when the streak ended. Notre Dame beat Oklahoma into that 47-game winning streak. And I believe that game was televised, I think. You know, sometimes you remember things differently than they were. (laughs) Uh, Marcel Proust said, remembrance of things past is not necessarily remembrance of things as they were. 
but yeah, Oklahoma was dominant. Now, people look at that and say, well, yeah, wow, Oklahoma. But if you go back into the 20s or what we were talking about earlier, Nebraska dominated that series with Oklahoma during that stretch. Mm-hmm. It went back and forth. But Oklahoma certainly by that point in the 50s, that was the, Oklahoma was the, was the was team. The team. Cornhuskers of Nebraska have a tough road to hoe as they take the turf at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln to battle the nation's number one team, the Sooners of Oklahoma, who are gunning for their 28th straight victory, the longest streak in collegiate football. The Sooners continue to pour it on, and the final count reads 41 to nothing. The Oklahomans vindicate their choice as the nation's number one team and stretch their string to 28 straight. They say now point for a date with Maryland in the Orange Bowl. So they had a really long conference streak going that ended up getting, that was ended by Bill Jennings, Nebraska. Was it like 59 in the homecoming game? Yeah, 59, 25-21, and it was a conference unbeaten streak. And I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to say it was 74 games, but there were two ties I know in the streak. Sometimes people say it was a winning streak, but it was, it was an unbeaten streak, and Nebraska ended up. Jackie Hall split wide to the right side. Quick kick for the Sooners. It's partially blocked as Cornell tried to get that one off. The ball is rolling free. One of the Huskers has it. It could be going all the way. It's Leroy Zedek to the five. He's over. Leroy Zedek picked up that loose ball. There's a flag, however, on the 22, but the penalty must Oklahoma. That was the thing with Jennings, is that he had some big upsets. I mean, the 1960 season, Nebraska opened against Texas, and Texas was preseason ranked, and that game was in Austin. And uh, Nebraska won that game. They pulled the upset, and it was like, you know, I remember thinking, because I'm growing up a fan, I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be a good season. Well, it wasn't. But Jennings had those. He beat Oklahoma again in 1960 and had to be escorted off the field in Norman because there was concern about his safety because Oklahoma fans were so upset about it. This is a story that Bill Jennings told was that he and Wilkinson had an agreement that he wouldn't recruit anybody from Oklahoma unless Wilkinson signed off on it. And Wilkinson wouldn't recruit anybody from Nebraska unless Jennings signed off on it. Well, Wilkinson flew up to Lexington, Nebraska to try to recruit Monty Kiffin, (laughs) which upset Jennings. And there was talk that Jennings was so upset that he turned in Oklahoma again for other more recruiting violations. And so Oklahoma turned around and said, well, there was some guy from Wichita, Kansas, and Nebraska had recruited, and there had been some questionable recruiting involved there, and the guy didn't come to Nebraska. And so there was kind of this back and forth between Nebraska and Oklahoma uh, hmm. about the time of the upset in 1959, although Wilkinson was very gracious about it, and, and Jennings was too. So Nebraska-Oklahoma rivalry, there was drama to it, even though when Nebraska won in 59, that ended the streak that Nebraska had lost like 17, 18 in a row to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. When Devaney comes in, that's what he uh, inherits. The first year that Devaney is here, uh, Nebraska goes down to Norman and gets beat like 34 to 6 or something. And I did see that game, I remember, because that game was carried on closed-circuit TV at Pershing Auditorium in Lincoln. Oh, wow. Sweet. And so friend and I came up from York with his parents or his dad or whatever and watched that game on closed-circuit TV. They had a big, like, four-screen deal hanging down from the ceiling. There was a scoreboard, I think, but it was like video. It wasn't very good. I think we had, they had technical difficulties and whatever. The way the game went, you might as well have, it was one big technical. 
So this starts to transition us then into what I guess I call the modern era of football of uh, Nebraska. 1962, Devaney comes here from Wyoming. Nebraska fires Bill Jennings. And I remember Bill Jennings making some statements to were like, you know, I can't feed the ego of this state with a football team. And But uh-huh. Devaney, what is he walking into? Because I know Nebraska went after Duffy Doherty. Duffy Doherty said no, the famous uh, the Michigan State coach. Because I'm, I wouldn't take it, but uh, I've got this guy over there in Wyoming who I think would be perfect for the job. What is Devaney stepping into on day one when he gets to Lincoln in, in 1962? Well, I think there was skepticism when he came here. Here again, I, you know, it's all about me, so I'm looking at it, you know, and I'm thinking, Bob Devaney, I've never heard of the guy. You know, he can't be very good because, I've, you know, I got this ego like any teenage kid would think, you know, that I know everything. And so I thought they ought to hire somebody that I'd heard of, but. And I think there was kind of that skepticism about it, you know, because his first game, there was 20-some thousand people at Memorial Stadium for that game. I think people were uncertain about what was going to happen. And, you know, dropping back, Devaney, he had to battle a little bit to get the Wyoming Board of Regents allowed to let him break his contract there. I mean, he didn't get here right away. Um, he had assistants here trying to recruit already before he ever got here because uh, he was still in Wyoming trying to get out of his contract, and finally he was released from that thing. And you're right, it was Clifford Harden was the chancellor here, and he had been an ag professor at Michigan State, and Devaney had been an assistant coach under Duffy Doherty before that big event. And so Clifford Harden said, hey, try to get Duffy Doherty, and Duffy said no, but you might try this Bob Devaney guy out in Wyoming, and that's how the contact was made. And the final, they were all from the Skyline Conference. Uh, the three finalists were all from the same place. John Ralston was one of them. I forget who the other guy was. Utah and Utah State coaches. And Devaney came in for an interview under an assumed name. Don Bryant told me a story, uh, you know, a long-time SID, the Fox, mm-hmm. said that Devaney came in under an assumed name and stayed just a couple houses from Don from Fox. <laughs> Fox didn't even know he was here. They brought him in, and Tippy Dye hired him. He wasn't Tippy's first choice. Tippy Dye's first choice was Hank Fulberg, who had been his coach at Wichita. And uh, Fulberg took the uh, Texas A&M job because I think it was a athletic director and football coach. And so uh, they went to their second choice, uh, which ended up being Bob Devaney. Nebraska opened the season at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln with a nucleus of 24 returning lettermen from a 1961 team which had won three, lost six, and tied one. The first opponent was the University of South Dakota of the North Central Conference. A crowd of 27,000 turned out at Memorial Stadium to take a look at Bob Devaney's new versatile T offense from an unbalanced line. I can remember our first game. In the first series of downs, we got the ball. We were playing South Dakota, I believe. And uh, we threw an incomplete forward pass. And everybody in the stands stood up and cheered and hollered. I guess they hadn't been passing much. So Bob comes here and has immediate success. Nine mm-hmm. and two, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, wins the bowl game, wins the Coffin Bowl. Uh, in, fr- in front of about 12 people. Yeah. Yeah, he said if, yeah, if there were as many people there as they said there were, then they came dressed as NPCs. <laughs> um, and I think the official attendance was listed at like 6,600 or something like that, which is why programs from that game get top dollar because they sold hardly any because uh, nobody was there. You know, it was cold, it was ice on the field, and by the second half, I think the Huskers were wearing tennis shoes to try to maintain their balance. Second down, 10. 
Miami with the football on the University of Nebraska 43-yard line. Shotgun offense, Myra back to throw, and the pass is broken up and intercepted by Bob Brown, the big guy driving straight up field at the 43-yard line. The ball was deflected, and they're going crazy on the Huskers' sideline across the way. A ball was deflected and came into the hands of huge Bob Brown, who ran the ball back up to the 43. And Nebraska now has ball possession, and if the Huskers can hang on for exactly 58 seconds, they will win the 1962 Gotham Ball game. You know, that game was on TV, and it was live in Nebraska, but it was shown to the rest of the country on Wide World Sports later that day on replay, but it was a victory. So that was a great thing. You know, people were really excited about that. And then in 1963, Miami tries to hire Bob away, Mm -hmm. and uh, he goes down there and interviews and everything and finally decides to stay, gets a bit of a raise here. So they almost lost him then. And then, as I think, as you mentioned earlier, by 68, they go back to back six and four, and people are in Omaha are circulating a petition to get rid of Bob. <laughs> because first of all, they the boosters said, you got to get rid of some assistant coaches, and mm-hmm. Bob wouldn't do it. That was the thing about Bob. He was loyal to people who were loyal to him. So when the boosters mm-hmm. said, get rid of assistants, he said, I'm not doing it. So then they circulate this petition that says, well, get rid of the coach then. And uh, Bob joked later that uh, his secretary handled all of his mail and she threw away the negative stuff. So he didn't know anything about the petition. But if he had, he'd have signed it himself. Well, one of the assistants that was on the petition was somebody he brought with him from Wyoming, John Melton. And I remember Melton making a statement. He goes, they had this petition. He goes, I signed it. We were terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I was very fortunate. I I, worked, I only worked with two guys, and Bob and Tom, and and both of them are great guys to work with. They're different personalities, you know, but both of them are great guys. Let your coach. That's the important thing. They don't look over your shoulder. That would drive a guy buggy. Well, he brought John Milton. He brought Carl Selmer. He brought Jim Ross, Mike Corgan. There was like one guy that he didn't bring because he, mm-hmm. he stayed out there to be the head coach, but. But that was the kind of loyalty that Bob had, and he brought that staff with him. And again, he was loyal to those guys, so that when the boosters said, you ought to get rid of some assistance, he said, there's no way, I'm not doing it. And Mac, this is something we talk about a lot on the show right now, and this is where I think history can teach us something right now, is that when we get frustrated fans and we lose a game, we immediately go to, we got to fire everybody. And sometimes you need to do that, but there's also, thank God, the people that signed those petitions in 68 to fire Devaney, to fire the staff, to fire all those horrible assistant coaches like Tom Osborne. Thank God those people didn't get their way at that time. I know, but here's the thing about those people. You need a balance of those kind of people because it's those squeaky wheels that get bad coaches out of here, too. It's those people that make us, you know, the administration always strive to get the best coach. But it is a balance because then they just lose their minds at, the, at some point, too, if you've lost four games in a row to somebody you shouldn't have. so. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting as you go through this, Mike, I keep hearing, like, okay, that sounds like not that long ago. That sounds like not that long ago. You know, like, it just keeps repeating. You know, money coming into a factor. Coaches going on uh, well, different we, job interviews to get a hike, you know, pay hike. Yeah, we had it, to pay, we couldn't pay Jumbo Steam, yeah. you know, 4250 but Devaney, you know, I, I remember they came up with something like a life insurance policy they gave him to help yeah. keep him around, you know? Yeah. It was supposed to be more than it ended up being, I think. <laughs> they had an idea how much it was going to be, and then they couldn't raise that much, and so they, they lowered it, but that was, you know, that was sufficient. He, mm-hmm. You know, he was okay with that. But yeah, he was the right guy at the right time. And ironically, when he got the Wyoming job, uh, he was about to the point where he was going to get out of coaching. 
because he got into it late and he just didn't know if he was going to keep going and then gets the Wyoming job he has the opportunity to come here and he's just really uh successful as he was successful at Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think about that. I'm 42 years old right now. Mm-hmm. And I think Devaney was around 42, 43 when he went to Wyoming. So he would have been 47, 48 when he got to Nebraska. And I can't imagine literally being buried at a place that I haven't even lived in yet. I mean, Bob Devaney is Nebraskan <laughs> as Nebraskan comes. And he didn't really even step foot in the state to live until he's five years older than I am right now, and by the <laughs> time he, crazy. you know, by the time he passed away, he was he was the face of this state. You know, that's a crazy thing. And what you said is perfect. You said he was the right guy for the right time, and I truly believe that because that's the other thing. When I think about the time, and I'm why I asked you about what was Nebraska like in '62, is there was a lot of division, from what I understand, too, mm-hmm. kind of within the fan base. They were frustrated. And one of Devaney's first thing was going across the state and going to every elk club and corner market, whatever, to talk to people and just get people to support Nebraska. And it got me thinking about where sure we are. He just wasn't cruising. Well, he could have been. <laughs> but it got me thinking about where we are right now. And right now, if you go out on social media, it you have the Husker realist and you have the Husker optimist, and they're they butt heads and they they can't get along together. And I think of Devaney. And he's the perfect example of both. He was as optimistic as anybody could possibly be in 62. But I also remember stories about him almost wanting to go back to Wyoming because our facilities were so bad. He was like, I, I could do better if I went back there. And there's that realist and optimist at the same point. And I think that's what made him so successful here was he he dreamed things that nobody possibly could have thought in 62 or even possible. But he also realized the work that was going to be required to get there. Yeah, well, and I think Duffy Doherty told him when he came to Nebraska when he was considering it, he said, look, if you go to Nebraska, you can win a championship there. But what Nebraska lacked, Bob said this, and I think Bill Jennings indicated to him, you know, that you're going to have to get some new offices. You know, this place just doesn't have the facilities. And Bob said that was the point, that they didn't have the facilities, but they had the players. Jennings, his background as a recruiter, uh, left Bob with lots of talent. I mean, Bob won right away, not necessarily with players he recruited. He mm-hmm. won right away with players that Bill Jennings recruited. Uh, Good but point. Jennings couldn't win with those guys. Dennis Claridge, 6'4", 222 pounds, raced for a touchdown to put the Cornhuskers out in front. Trying for the point after touchdown is Tyson. There it is. It's perfect. And Nebraska leads by a score of 7 to nothing. The clock has stopped in the field. With the score here at the Orange Bowl, Nebraska 7, Auburn nothing. That's the thing. Jennings recruited pretty well. And the thing was, as Bill went along, and they weren't successful, he didn't never, he never had a winning season. The more they lost, the more the frustration grew, the harder he pushed the players. And practices got longer and longer. You know, they were going into the early evening. And one of the things that Bob looked at when he came here was, this was a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to cut down. So he was very practice. He shortened practices significantly. And he knew he had the talent, but he wanted players to believe in themselves. So if he, one of the, one of the assistant coaches told me this, that they'd plan out what they were going to do in practice. They'd run plays. If a play wasn't working, Bob would just go to another one. And he would find something that worked, and then he'd run that, and they'd run it over and over and over again. Then when the coaches met afterward, they'd go over the plays that didn't work. So the coaches would correct the problem. He didn't have the players correct the problem on the field because he wanted them to think in terms of, you know, we're being successful. So 
know, there's always humor in our practice. You know, like, for instance, at the end of the practice, Bob might, he calls them all in together and he might tell them a story or something. Or he'd say, hey, go take a couple laps around Don Bryant and go on in. You know, things like that. And it'd break up the kids. And they always left on a, on a high note. But there were sometimes, you know, Bob has a temper or had a temper at that time. And if things didn't go right, it, he didn't visit with him very long. But when he visited with him, they, he got their attention. He really did. And some of his halftime speeches were beauties. So he had a plan when he came in, mm-hmm. and he had the players that Jennings had brought in, and uh, he was able to be immediately successful. So there's the hiccup that we talked about in 67 and 68. After having an initial five years of success, six and four, which should not be considered you know, horrible, right? But we didn't make bowl games. The homecoming game with Kansas State was a nightmare. From the weather to the way the game went for the Huskers. They got shut out 13 nothing, I think, to Kansas State. And I remember Don Bryant making a statement about <laughs> how you know they were yelling at the SID after that loss. And he's like, you know, yeah, that's not... It was uh, Osborne and uh, Melton, I think, were the coaches up in the press box. Uh-huh. The joke was that they, they waited a long time to come down so <laughs> the fans could get out of the stadium so they didn't have to walk through the fans. But in 67, they were 6-4, and four, but they led the nation in defense. Oh, wow. They led the nation in total defense. They were six and four. Mm-hmm. They, did, they had problems with offense and too many interceptions. They weren't successful from that standpoint, but still six and four. And they had an opportunity. There was talk that they could have had a bowl game, but mm-hmm. players said, no, we're not going to do that, which, again, is a change in mentality. You know, now that wouldn't be left up to the players, nor would the players say, no, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But so 68 was really the only season. I believe they could have had a bowl game. In 67, there was a chance that they could have. Um, but uh, 68, no. And so back-to-back 6-4, and four, and then it's like, let's get rid of this guy. And they didn't. Yeah, so recruiting starts to fill in in 69, in 68 and 69, and you're starting to get the new crop of freshmen coming in and sophomores, and, and that starts to be the, the group of players that end up leading us to, to championships years later. Yeah, and, and Bob had to turn the offense over to Tom. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, too, and said uh, during that time, he says, uh, you know, we need to do something different than what we've been doing. Uh, Tom was coaching the ends, but he, he moves to kind of a spread offense, and Tom decides that what he needs to do is, with all the interceptions and the problems they had in 67, um, he starts meeting with the quarterbacks on a regular basis. That's something that he set up himself. Uh, mm-hmm. gives them weekly tests <laughs> on things. And, you know, and I, and I don't want to make it sound like it, it's a team effort, obviously. But Tom had a big influence in that change because Bob turned the offense over to him and said, hey, do this. And Tom did some recruiting uh, in junior colleges in mm-hmm. California. And they got some guys like Bob Newton, mm-hmm. Bob Terrio, and, and uh, Carl Johnson, I think, was an Arizona junior college guy. And that made a difference in that they didn't have to wait for, say, an uh, offensive lineman to develop uh, if they brought him in as freshman or whatever. They had mm-hmm. some immediate guys that could step into the offensive line, offensive guard, that, whose name I'm forgetting here, and I feel bad about that, who played on both national championship teams. Weighed about 210 pounds, but he's a really good player. Was that Malin? Uh, uh, no, Wayne Malin was, he started out as an offensive guard as a sophomore, and then they moved him to uh, middle guard. And he had two really good seasons of middle guard his junior and senior year. His senior year was really remarkable. 67, he was a senior. He finished ninth in voting for the Heisman Trophy, I think, that year. Oh, okay. And that was the year that Nebraska led the nation in total defense. And the 
overlooked, I think. Yeah, he was from Michigan. Uh, can't think of the offensive guard team. That's bad when you get to be my age and you start forgetting names like that. But uh, There's a lot of players um, over the years, though, you keep piling in there. Yeah. <laughs> That's the but problem. He was, he, was really, he was really a good player, and he was a junior college guy that Tom brought in as well. And so, you know, that was a change. I think one of the things, and again, this is a generalization, but one of the things that Bob felt was that, you know, they had played Alabama in bowl games back-to-back in 65 and 66, mm-hmm. and had gotten beat. And Alabama had these offensive linemen that weren't real big, but they were really quick. Mm-hmm. And so Bob kind of joked, you know, well, we went to recruiting uh, linemen that weren't quite as big, offensive linemen, and they weren't very quick either. Um, <laughs> and so he had to get, he had to kind of get away from that. And so that's where they put the emphasis on uh, going into the junior college ranks. But Tom was a significant part of that change in the offense and the direction that they went. Victor in the 1971 Orange Bowl and picked by the Associated Press, number one team of the nation. It's always fun to be number one, but that's history now. The Cornhuskers of Nebraska, last year's National Football College champions, will have to prove it all over again during the 1971 season. You know, Jeff Kenny for a long time held the single season record for receptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of a wingback uh, initially, and then they moved him to back. Oh, yeah. Jerry Taggy talked about how Osborne was passing guru of college football back then. And, and you had Guy Ingles, and you had obviously Jeff Kenny. And then you look at the stats that Rodgers had receiving back then. I mean, those are stats that still stand up even today after the, the different passing eras we've had under Callahan and Riley and so on. Spark plugging the nation's number one team in 1972, Johnny Rogers proves himself one of the most versatile backs in Nebraska history. As a punt returner, pass receiver, blocker, and runner, he broke offensive records by the dozens. In his three-year career, he racked up 5,586 all-purpose yards for an NCAA record. Well, yeah, because, you know, Tom was a receiver's coach. That's what I always appreciated about Tom, you know. Some people have said that Tom was inflexible, but he was far from it. I mean, he made changes when he saw that that was of value, and that's one of the changes. He came in as a, as a sort of a pass-oriented coach, mm-hmm. and uh, when he was the head coach, David Hum and Vince Ferragamo, yep. uh, look at the passing yardage that they put up, but Tom looked at it and came to the realization that a passing yard is not worth as much as a rushing yard, and moved away from that. He saw that in order to be successful in the Big Eight, you had to play the way Oklahoma played. Yep. And so he changed that offense and went to an option-oriented offense and uh, started with about with the recruitment of Jeff Quinn. And uh, Turner Gill was kind of an important quarterback in that mm-hmm. transition because I think Turner could have done either one. He could have been an outstanding just drop-back passer, but he ran some option and then Steve Taylor was a key guy in the development of that. And, you know, it kind of emerged into the Tommy Fraser type guy and Scott Frost. You know, that's reflective of Tom's willingness to change. I really like how, as we're going through the history here, as we're going through the years, you see how trends can affect how coaches run their own programs. So to your point in the 60s, when Alabama was showing a little more speed and Stabler's at quarterback and all that, and that forces Devaney to get a little more speed, that starts to show up on the field a few years later as we're 
having Rodgers and Kenny and those guys out there. As Osborne is losing those first five games to Oklahoma and getting beat by the Thomas Lots and J.C. Watts at quarterback, that transitions us to to go out and beat Barry Switzer to get Turner Gill here. And it even goes into the 90s. We're getting beat by the Miamis and Florida States because our defense doesn't have enough speed like they do, and we transition to the 4-3. And each one of these are examples of our great coaching staffs learn from great opponents what worked against them, and then we start to recruit that way. And as long as you show a willingness to do it, and you know, with some of the some of the things about today is coaching staffs not getting enough time to evolve. You know, mm-hmm. you have to show aptitude. The thing is to win all along, but but you're right. That's a thing that's missed about Osborne all the time. That is a great point, and I'm going to give it back to you here, Mike. Is that giving coaching staffs enough time to evolve? Frost is in year three, and there's already pressure from some people that he's not made for this. He doesn't have the experience, blah, blah, blah. And I guess we've already transitioned now into the 70s. We've transitioned into the Osborne era. And those first five years, we don't beat Oklahoma. I mean, Osborne talked about it at one point that after I think it was the Arizona State Bowl game, if they didn't beat that, if they didn't beat that team, that he had a, a regent come up to him and say, I'm glad you won because you'd have been fired. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the 76 Blue Bottom Bowl against Texas Tech. Uh, I try not to put any stipulations on anybody uh, that I would not have expected myself. Um, uh, I never, when I was coaching here, until maybe the last three or four years, felt that I could survive a losing season as the head coach. I did not think I would be employed. And I'll tell you where that came from. The uh, the first four years, um, uh, we were... Nine two and one first uh, beat Texas in the Cotton Bowl. Next year nine and three beat Florida in the Sugar Bowl. The uh, third year we were ten and two, tied for the conference championship. Lost to um, uh, Arizona State in the Fiesta Bowl. And then the fourth year we ended up nine three and one, beat Texas Tech in the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl. And that evening one of the regents got me aside and said. Uh, I'm glad you won tonight because if you hadn't, you'd been fired. And uh, I gathered there had been some serious conversation about my future at that point. So that was four years, uh, uh, about 77, 78% winning percentage. And, uh, and yet that was the nature of the deal here. And so, uh, uh, believe me, uh, I would not expect anything uh, for, from any coach here that I hadn't experienced myself or didn't believe would be applied to me as a coach here. People look at Tom's 25 seasons and, oh, by the way, Dick Rupert was a guard. I was trying to think of. <laughs> Good. I apologize, Dick Rupert. But, uh, you know, people think that Tom's 25 seasons was just like a straight rise right up the mountain to those three national titles in his final four seasons and, you know, that remarkable finish that he had there. Mm-hmm. But it was a bumpy ride. Oh, you yeah. know, after that Blue Bonnet Bowl, and I remember after the, uh, it was in the late 80s when they played uh, Miami in the, one of the Orange Bowls and didn't do very well, couldn't establish a running game, and somebody asked him afterward about, you know, why they kept running the ball, and he said, you know, if we can't run the ball, we weren't going to be successful. That's why we kept doing it, mm-hmm. because that's what we do. And then I think later he was talking to a handful of Nebraska in-state media guys, and it, it almost sounded like he thought, you know, maybe the game is passing me by. You know, all these people, because fans were complaining. Nebraska didn't throw the ball enough mm-hmm. yeah, at that point, because they were playing these teams in the bowl games that were doing it. And it was like Nebraska didn't throw the ball enough, and I think it got Tom. It got 
Mm-hmm. And like you said, that was the other key thing was that he always thought that that 4-3, they played it in passing situation, but they didn't think that it would hold up against the run. And you had to hold up against the run if you're going to be successful in the Big 8. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going to have to play Oklahoma. Or Colorado, when it stepped up, that's the way Colorado played. Or when Kansas State had some success. You know, Michael Bishop, uh, he was a running quarterback. Yeah. That's how you did it. But Tom stuck with it, and he looked at the defense, and they had a game against Oklahoma, I forget which year it was, where they played the 4-3 most of the game, and it held up against the run. And Tom said, hey, it will hold up against the run. Huh. They had recruited speed. Mm-hmm. They were moving guys around. You know, here's... Ed Stewart was recruited as a safety, and he's playing linebacker and earned All-America recognition. They got more speed. They're playing the 4-3 base. And then you get into a bowl game, and you're beating Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, you beat Tennessee. You accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. His willingness to change, not just for the sake of change, but there was a good basis for that change. And he did, and that's what made him such a great coach. But to get back to our original point, it was not a straight rise to those national titles. It was a rocky deal. He almost went to Colorado in 78. He and Nancy went out to Boulder, and he met with the players out there. Mm -hmm. And after that, he did kind of a phone interview because he, typical Tom, he went off recruiting right away. So I think he called back from Kansas City or somewhere. But he said, you know, when he was meeting with the players out there, he realized, I can't coach guys that I recruited at Nebraska. I can't coach against those guys. Mm. And he didn't take the job. And he could have tripled his base salary if he'd have done it, but he didn't go. But mm. he had the opportunity, and in his mind, he thought there would have been a lot less pressure. I mean, you think about that, and again, you look at Tom's career, and you think, you know, it was just a straight right to those national titles at the end. You know, that made sense, but <laughs> there was times where it, didn't look too good. Oh yeah, there's so much re- so much revisionist history that we have sometimes. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He is a Mount Rushmore of coaches and and I like to say he was fired thousands of times throughout his 25 years across the state. Every Oklahoma loss was brutal. Those mm-hmm. seven straight bowl losses were brutal. To your point, we didn't pass enough, right? Yeah, it was 81 they lost to Iowa on the road and then they beat Florida State. And then they lost to Penn State, oh. and they're one and two. And then they play Auburn in Lincoln, mm-hmm. and at halftime they're going off the field, and the fans are booing. <laughs> and I think they're booing Turner Gill. Or they wanted Gill, court. didn't? Didn't they want Gill? Because Ma- was Mauer the first half quarterback? Yeah, but I think Gill came in, and they still weren't doing anything. Oh, wow. And I think the people were booing, and Tom was like, "Yeah, they're booing me. They're not booing players or whatever." <laughs> you know, people were upset. You think about that, and then by the end of the season, they're playing Clemson in the Orange Bowl. A warm, humid night in South Florida, the national championship of college football on the line. Number one, Clemson against number four, Nebraska. Danny Ford, college coach of the year, just 33 years old, leads his number one Clemson Tigers into the game against a counterpart of long standing and high ranking among the coaches. Tom Osborne, the coach of Nebraska. He calls this his ninth team at Nebraska, the best he's ever had. And if, if they'd have won that game, the way the other bowl games went, Nebraska could have been national champion that year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you look at it, just about it, every year in the 80s from 1981 on, Nebraska was in a position at some point in the season where you could have said, hey, this could be a national championship run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every one of those seasons. Now, by the end of the year, in some cases, it didn't look that way. But there was always a point because Nebraska had 
in the top 10 rankings that it could have been in a position to win a national title, but never did. And like you said, there are people every, just about every season through that stretch, there probably was somebody. There was probably people when Tom opted to go for two and win the uh, bowl game against Miami after the 83 season, mm-hmm. there were probably people that were upset about that because if they had kicked the extra point, the odds were that they would have been national champions because they would have been the only undefeated team. But he elected to go for two. And Tom earned a lot from the national media, earned a tremendous amount of respect for that decision to go for two. Mm-hmm. But he played to win. The Cornhuskers somehow find a way with Mike Rogier on the sideline, his backup. Jeff Smith takes the pitch back up brilliantly executed play by Turner Gill. 24 yards and a touchdown. Now it's a 31 to 30 game. And what does what Nebraska are they doing? do? I have not seen the kicker come on the field, and I don't think he's coming on the field. And I might as well, I think that they've got things going their way. Tom Osborne made this decision a long time ago. Don't think that this situation caught him by surprise. He's decided to go for two and take his shot at winning. I commend him for it. This is for the national championship for Nebraska. Yeah. You know, I look at it and, and I realize, I, I know the dynamic of the whole thing, but both Polini's teams always won at least nine games, always played in the bowl game. Yep. But there were some really bad losses in there. Yeah, it was, and the fact that they, they lost four every season, too. I mean, that's Osborne's to go 255, 49, and three, to average more than 10 wins a season, and to av- that 49 is important because he did not average two losses a year. It's 1.9999, but who cares? To go 25 years in that kind of stability, to never win less than nine, to never lose more than three is unbelievable. And to the point where people would say, well, the big eight was crap back then and all you had to beat was Oklahoma. Well, number one, look at some of those non-conference schedules when you're playing Florida State, Penn State, Iowa, and Auburn. And anyone that says that the big eight was garbage, Every year, if you go through his 25 years, you always had Oklahoma, but there was always somebody else. Iowa State in the 70s was good. Missouri beat us three straight times in Lincoln in the 70s. Oklahoma State would have Barry you know, Sanders for a year. I mean, there was always other teams yeah. other than Kansas State for the most part. They were the one guarantee awful team during Colorado until, until the very end of Osborne's era. Kansas State was awful, but Colorado at the end. Yeah, Colorado was in. Colorado used Nebraska as the plan, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 255. 49 and 3. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. The kind of success that he had. Well, and it, you know, I cost him one of those 49. So. <laughs> yeah, t- tell us the story. Uh, cause we were talking about it off air, but 1978 is an important year, not just because of Osborne in, in Colorado, but a certain uh, sports writer came on to the uh, beat. That's my first year at the, at the newspaper, and I'm, you know, it's, it's my dream job because I grew up here, and that's what I always wanted to do. And I'd been teaching at a community college in Illinois, and so I get the opportunity to come back to work for the Journal and the Star. And so my first day on the job is in August of 1978, and Nebraska opens the season against Alabama, and it's televised on ABC, and they made a big deal out of the opening game of the season back then, and you weren't on TV that often and so forth. So first game against Alabama and Birmingham. Two weeks into my job, Nebraska has its final major scrimmage before the Alabama game, and after the scrimmage, Tom calls the team up to the south end zone and says something to the effect of, 
defense against Alabama, they'll be lucky to score more than a touchdown or so against you guys. So I thought, well, that's a great quote. So I go back to the newspaper, and I put it in fairly high up in the story. And uh, two weeks later, Nebraska goes down to Alabama and loses 20-3. to And on the Monday after that, at the Extra Point Club downtown in Lincoln, I got Miller and Payne. I'm the new guy on staff, so I have to go over and cover the Extra Point Club. And then I have to get something in the journal, the afternoon paper. So I have to hustle back from the Extra Point Club as soon as everything is done there. So the typical structure of the Extra Point Club at that time was that Tom would talk, then a student assistant or grad assistant would talk about the upcoming opponent, and then one of the assistant coaches would show film and comment on the game that they had just played. So I'm over there covering it, and Tom makes his comments, and they talk about the scouting report. I can't remember whether it was either California or Hawaii it was the next game. Uh, and then Darlington gets up to show the film. George says, I'm not going to show this film until a certain sports writer leaves because he cost <laughs> us this game. Oh, man. And I look around and there's not anybody there from the World Herald. I'm the only one. He doesn't use my name and everybody's looking at me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I got to get this in the afternoon paper. You know, it's it's like Alexander the Great, short life, but a glorious one. <laughs> um, I'm out of here. But So then George relents and he goes, well, okay, I'll show it as long as nobody quotes anything I say. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, well, there we go. So uh, after practice, we all meet this group. There's a whole handful of reporters. Now it's about 30. Back then it was four or five. And Tom says, Mike, when we get done here, he said, I, I want to talk to you. So I thought, well, okay, here's my short life, but of course, when I'm done, I'm going to be covering heaven knows what or not out of a job. So Tom takes me aside after he gets done. He said, Mike, he said, yeah, I know you're new on the job. We got a rule here. He said, we let people come to practice and we let them watch scrimmages, but you can't report on anything you see or hear. You can only ask me questions about what you see or hear, and I'll either answer them or I won't. And that's all he said. So I thought, well, I dodged both there. I really have great respect for a coach for that because I hadn't known that was the rule. So a day or two later, I'm standing around waiting to talk to Coach Osborne with a group of reporters, and Lance Van Sant, the defensive coordinator, comes walking by, and in his gruff voice, he says, when you're done there, come up to my office. So I thought, well, okay, I got through Tom, but I'm probably not going to get through Lance Van Zandt. So I get done with the interview with Tom and whatever else I had to do, and I go up to Lance's office, and with a couple of swear words, he says, shut the door, and so I shut the door, and he says, sit down, and I sit down. Rick Duvall, the recruiting coordinator, opens the door, sticks his head in, and Lance more expletives and tells him to shut the door and get out of there. So he does, and I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. Lance turns to me and said, you know, he said, you're new on the job. He said, I just want to tell you that uh, as long as you do what you think is right, you're going to be fine. And that's all he said. Wow. Even though I accomplished something, a month on the job that Kansas State, Kansas, Oklahoma State never did, <laughs> which was beat the Huskers under Osborne, I maintained my job. And, you know, I counted as a blessing that I had the opportunity to work with Tom Osborne for the majority of his time as head coach and certainly after that, and, and also Bob Devaney as athletic director. For somebody that grew up in this state and had that kind of opportunity, I never... Um, I never set that aside. I'm, you know, I was very blessed in my working life to deal with those two people. Mike, I got to tell you here. I mean, I've, Mac is looking at me. I've got a smile from ear to ear because this has just been a blast. I didn't know when we'd start recording here. I didn't know if we were just going to do a little segment. I can tell you right now, this is going to be its own separate show because this has <laughs> been great. I want to 
finish with a question. A colleague of mine, Carl Vogel, uh, you used to work with him at the Journal Star. He, he told me, yeah, he told me a story and I just have to ask it for you. At one point you were named like the top 10 dress best something sports writer or whatever. And that he said you came back into the office and Randy York and Ken Hamilton, a couple of those guys were dressed in tuxedos, you know, to welcome you back into the office. What, what exactly is that about? Okay. And again, I grew up, I was a big fan. I subscribed to the sporting news and I subscribed to the football news, which was a newspaper published in Michigan, I think. And Pam Stanton and her husband, Roger, were the publishers of the football news. And so I'm covering Colorado game in Boulder and I've got on a sport coat and a tie, which I typically did when Nebraska went on the road during those years. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting next to Pam Stanton and man, you know, I re- grew up reading the football news. So, you know, I turned to her and I said, you know, hello, I'm Mike Babcock. I write for the Lincoln Journal and Star. And the only thing she said to me was, you dress pretty well for a sports writer. <laughs> and that's it. For the, the whole game, the nothing. That's the only thing she ever said to me. So <laughs> later that year, the football news always put out its 10 best in sports and football at the end of the year. Uh-huh. And the thing comes out for 1986, and here's a list of 10, and there's Eric Dickerson, and there's Al Michaels, and there's Dan Reeves, and there's Mike Babcock. <laughs> and I get a nice plaque from the football news. I'm on the 10 best dressed list with Eric Dickerson <laughs> and all these people. <laughs> nice. And so the Journal Star, a bunch of people there, you know, they put on tuxedo. I didn't know what they were going to do it that day. And we take a picture. And, you know, everybody's all dressed up except for me. I probably got on a sweater and whatever that day. And we ran, I think we ran it in the, in the paper with a column. But the funniest part of it is, so one of the Chicago newspapers ran a story about this best dress list. <laughs> and it had a picture of Jim McMahon wearing a big fur coat and I, Mike Dick or something. And there's a little bit of a story. And at the end of the story, it says something, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the essence of it. Further undercutting the credibility of this list was the inclusion <laughs> of Lincoln, Nebraska sports writer Mike Babcock. <laughs> so I made it into the Chicago paper over that thing. That's uh, that is great. <laughs> Mike, I can't tell you how much I appreciate, Mac, how much we appreciate your time tonight. Absolutely. This has been a ton of fun. And also, I get, you know, for Redcast listeners out there, I hope this is honestly the, the goal of this was to be kind of educational too. I know podcasts, we don't always think of it that way, but this is a chance to, to really talk about more than just what's going on the last five years or 10 years. I mean, this is a really, when you think about Nebraska being a blue blood and what made us a blue blood, it's everything that we've just talked about here in this last hour. It is, it started in 1891 and it went all the way through, through the good years, through the bad years, through coaching changes. Runza, Coke, Pepsi, all those things change. <laughs> well, see, that's Nebraska. That's the richness of Nebraska history, and that's what's frustrating about Steve Peterson, who I consider a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, when he became athletic director, he basically tried to erase Frank Solich from the history of Nebraska. You know, that it included Bob Devaney and Tom Osborne, and it would include whoever Steve hired from then on. And it's all those people. I mean, mm-hmm. it's even though it's Bill Jennings. It's Pete Elliott. It's everybody that's coached here is a fabric of Nebraska football history, whether they were successful or they weren't. Mm -hmm. It's part of what Nebraska football is. That's what makes what Osborne did, what Devaney did so great. What Jumbo Steam, Bummy Booth, DX Bible, you have to include all those people in there. You know, the funny thing about Bible, one last point. The story was that Nebraska actually tried to 
get Newt Rockney. <laughs> oh, wow. Rockney said no, but how about checking with DX Bible? He'd be a good one. And they got Bible. And he was a good one. Rockney would have been pretty good, too. Rockney, Rockney would, was, yeah, he might have been all right. I heard he did okay. You know, when, <laughs> when Osborne replaced Peterson as AD, and I remember one of the first questions to him as he's walking through the new, at that time, the brand new North Stadium, and, you know, it was all shiny, but Osborne said the walls are pretty white. There wasn't any awards. There weren't any yeah. any yeah, of the Heisman. Of stuff down. Yeah. 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 I didn't understand why you want to eliminate all that stuff. You know, I, I just felt bad because, again, Steve, I, I considered him a friend. And I, I think that he just he felt like he needed to uh, establish his own reputation. And, you know, when, when he got rid of Frank, Tom wasn't around. I mean, Tom was off. In a DC. Convention or on vacation or something. And, and uh, sure. Steve waited till Tom wasn't here to, to make that decision. I, You know, I thought he should have used Tom as a mentor. And I think mm. he was hesitant to do that. Wow. Uh, but again, you don't want to erase this stuff. You want to build on it. Um, That's a good point. Take the good parts of it. That's a good Mike, point. This, I mean, that can be a whole other show sometime. <laughs> and, we would, yeah. and I'll tell you what, we would love to have you back again. But Sometime I'll tell you about when I fell down in front of Osborne's car. That, <laughs> next time and thank you so much Mike really right. appreciate it have a good evening hey thanks for having me guys. Yeah. great talking to you